We're going to read from Mark chapter 8, uh, 12 verses from verse 22 to 33 today. So if you've been tracking with us on this journey with Jesus through the Gospel of Mark, we're at the halfway point here today. There are 16 chapters in Mark, and uh, it's interesting because the the midway point that changes the direction of the whole feel of the gospel is this chapter when we get to the passage we're going to look at here this morning. How about if I ask you to read with me? This is uh, starting with verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me. Next page, not the, not the back page, next page. Satan, he said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Father God, we gather today and we ask that you'd give us clarity about who Jesus is. Jesus has talked about a lot around the world. Many think he was a good teacher. Some other religions want to claim Jesus as one of their prophets or their influential thinkers. Help us to see with clarity what Jesus wanted his original disciples to see so that if we are to follow him, we will understand the same things. In the same way that, that we just sang that song, give us vision to see the things that you see and the ways that you see. God, when we gather here together, we we come for a variety of reasons. We come to praise your name. We come to read through Scripture and be reminded of things that some of us already know. We come to learn things we haven't discovered yet and to be taught in, in ways that your Spirit will guide and in ways that sometimes break through to bring new understanding into our lives and new freedoms. We also come here offering you our prayers and our worship, and so we ask that you'd hear us when we call out to you. We we call out to you as a church and ask that you would allow us to fulfill the specific mission you have for us as a congregation, as a a gathering of people and a a group that is increasingly becoming a, a body that works together, that loves together, that belongs together. Give us favor with our neighbors, with the towns around us, with the people we meet wherever we go, 
when we leave this place and go into our worlds for the next six days until we return. Give us wisdom to know how to conduct ourselves, what to say, sometimes even more importantly, what not to say, how to say it, how not to say it. Let the grace of Jesus guide my words, our words, my thinking, our thinking, our actions every day. Forgive us our sins as we acknowledge before you that, that we mess up, sometimes deliberately, sometimes without even realizing what we're doing. Restore us. Make us new on the inside. You know the guilt that many of us wrestle with and how we are prone to beat ourselves up again and again. Free us from those traps. Allow us to know that when we have placed our faith and trust and our hopes in you, that your forgiveness is so radical that you give us new starts in life and that you bring hope every day. We pray for wisdom with the decisions that some will have to make this week regarding uh, something at work or some crisis at home. And we pray that you'd give us the, the calmness to be able to listen and the ability to recall things that we know to be true and feel that nudge from your spirit or hear that whisper, however you choose to lead. And then give us the faith to move forward in that. We pray for our worship pastor, David Coate, this morning as he is tending to his father who's entered hospice care. And we ask that you would fill David with encouragement and hope and the right spirit that he needs for the next several days. We pray for his dad that uh, you would make these days uh, filled with meaning and joy as his kids are around him. Lord, thank you for pumping value into every aspect of life. And so we ask that you would guide us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you know the name of Sheryl Sandberg. Uh, Sheryl Sandberg seemed to have everything going her way a few years ago. She was the COO of Facebook. She was the author of the best-selling book, Lean In, subtitled Women, Work, and the Will to Lead. And she was happily married with two children. And then on May 1st, 2015, as she and her family were on a family vacation at a Mexican resort with some of their closest friends in the world, her husband, Dave Goldberg, died very suddenly. He'd been working out on a fitness center treadmill at the resort. At first, they thought that he'd had a fall from the treadmill and hit his head, and later it was determined that he'd simply died from an arrhythmia that had been there all along, and it just happened that particular day to take over. He was found by Dave's brother and, and Dave's brother's wife and by Cheryl, but they weren't able to bring him back. Later in the hospital, one of Dave's closest friends had to gently pull Cheryl away from Dave. She wanted to hug him one more time and to hold on even though he was already gone. Two years later, Sandberg would write another book. This one was called Option B. It's about decisions you make when you realize that your life is no longer the life that you thought it would be or the life that you hoped for. And how do you make the best of the opportunities that you have before you? And so in her mind, she was going to uh, make the best opportunity at this new option B that had presented itself and find the most she could in life. 
Forbes Coaches Council writer and speaker Sidney Evans included Sheryl Sandberg's story as a powerful example of what we sometimes call a defining moment. Evans describes a defining moment this way. A defining moment is a point in your life when you're urged to make a pivotal decision or when you experience something that fundamentally changes you. Not only do these moments define us, but they have a transformative effect on our perceptions and our behaviors. Have you ever had one of those events that we refer to as a defining moment of life? This morning we're going to talk about a defining moment in the life of Peter, one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. This was not the only defining moment of Peter's life and ministry, but it is arguably the most pivotal defining moment of his life. And in turn, we'll see that this defining moment also marked a pivotal movement in the earthly ministry of Jesus. It comes right at the center point of Mark's gospel, and so it is also the turning point of the direction of Mark's gospel as well. So here this Sunday morning, we're in week eight of our Journey with Jesus series as we're walking our way through the Gospel of Mark, one chapter at a time. And if you've been tracking with us, uh, this week you'll be halfway through the Gospel. So if you've never read one of the, the opening four Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life, keep going. You're halfway through the Gospel of Mark this week. And this morning's message hinges on one question from Jesus to his disciples. Who do you say I am? Jesus wanted to know their answer to that question. He wants to know our answer to that question today as well. Who do you say that I am? We're going to look at some lessons from Peter's defining moment. Here's the first one. It was set up by a miracle of sight. It says in verse 22, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't even go into the village. Now, this is an unusual healing in the ministry of Jesus for a couple of reasons. First, because of the confirming question that Jesus asks. It's the only time he does this in all the miraculous signs or all the healings that he does in the Gospels. He asks, do you see anything? He's asking for some kind of confirmation from the man. Uh, you know, has something happened here? I put my hands on you. I've, I've even spit on your eyes. I don't know if it was into his eyes or saliva. We're not, we're not given the answer to that question. It sounds kind of messy, doesn't it? Jesus does messy things sometimes with you and me as well. Do you see anything, he asks. The second reason is because this healing occurs in two stages. Most of the time when we see Jesus heal somebody, it's instantaneous. He speaks a word, boom, something happens. He touches somebody instantaneously, power goes out. Those are the kinds of scenes that we've seen so far. And this time, it's, it's like there's a halfway healing. And then Jesus comes back and does some more. It makes me wonder if that's the way that he works in our lives too sometimes, that he gives us part of what we need at the right moment and all of what we need at another moment still in the future. It appears that this man had previously been able to see, then had lost his sight. We don't know how or why or for how long he'd lost his sight, but after Jesus touches him and he first begins to see, he sees in part and he recognizes things. 
He even describes the people he sees as looking like trees walking around. Now, there's no way that a blind person who'd been blind his entire life would recognize what trees look like instantaneously. But he has this recall, he has this memory that he's acting on, and so it gives us the idea that somewhere along the way, something had happened. There'd either been some kind of deterioration in his eyes, or there'd been an accident that happened, and he'd been longing to recover that sight. It is also likely that Mark's placement of this miracle of sight just prior to Peter's confession is intentional. Restoring sight to the blind is something that has been called a promised action of God. I, I love that thought. A promised action of God. In other words, God had promised through the prophets years before that there were certain things that would happen in the time when the Messiah was walking on the earth. The Messiah means chosen one. It's the same word as, as the word Christ or Christos in Greek. It means the, the chosen one, the anointed one of God for a very unique, powerful, specific purpose. We see this in Psalm 146, verse 8. There it says, The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. Again, in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18, it says, In that day, or in the day of the Messiah, in other words, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Again, a few chapters later, Isaiah says in chapter 35 of his book, Then the eyes of the blind will be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The picture that is given there is that all kinds of life-changing things will happen in the day when the Lord comes with power through the ministry of the Messiah. More than prophecy, these promised actions of God were signs of the Messiah's time. So Mark is preparing readers of his gospel like you and me to come to defining moments in regard to how we understand Jesus. Thus, chapter 7 ends with the account of Jesus healing the ears of a man who was deaf and mute. And now in chapter 8, we find Jesus restoring sight to a man who had gone blind. These specific miracle, miraculous events, miracles or miraculous events, were more than acts of mercy upon a suffering person. Each miracle was also a fulfillment of a promised action of God that the Old Testament scriptures had trained the Jewish people of that day to look forward to. This is how they would recognize the time of the Messiah. This is how they would recognize the identity of God's Messiah. So the first lesson is that this was set up by a miracle of sight. And that sight is meant to lead you and me to wonder what will we see when we understand Jesus. Here's the second lesson. Jesus wants us to see and hear. If we go back to a, a paragraph just before what we read a few moments ago, verse 18 has a question from Jesus where he says, Don't you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? In this scene, just before healing the blind man, Jesus asked this specific question. He has made a comment to his disciples just after feeding 4,000 people. So a few chapters ago, we talked about Jesus feeding 5,000 people. 
Here's another situation that Mark presents as a completely different episode, different area. This time there are about 4,000 people that he feeds. The first time there were 12 baskets of, of bread that were left over. This time there are seven baskets that they collect at the end of that. Some have wondered, well, is this Mark confused and, and he's repeating what he's already said? Except he puts in the words of Jesus a question to his disciples saying, hey, don't you remember how we fed the 5,000 and then we fed the 4,000? And in the same paragraph, he puts them side by side. So Jesus himself presents these as two separate miraculous events that are very similar to each other. And then he warned his disciples. He says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they were confused by that comment. This is what prompted his question. Don't you have eyes, uh, but you, you fail to see? And don't you have ears, but you're failing to hear? The Pharisees had heard about the feeding of the 4,000 and immediately asked Jesus to give them a sign from heaven. And Jesus refuses to give them a sign. He's basically saying, if you don't believe the things that already happened, why should I do something special for you when you come cynically just trying to trap me again and again and again? So this warning about the yeast of the Pharisees refers to this request. And he's saying, don't let their hardness of heart spread into your lives too, like yeast would, would spread as it's kneaded through a whole batch of dough. In other words, the miracles Jesus had given them were the signs of his identity. And for those who were thinking, those who were pondering, those who were asking the hard questions, they would see, they would hear. For each one of these miraculous signs pointed to his authority and to his identity and to his messianic fulfillment. So Jesus asked the question, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? He expected his disciples to put the clues together without him spelling it all out for them. Giving a deaf man hearing and a blind man sight were signs that the Messiah had come and, th and that they were living within that time. Just as feeding the 5,000 and then again a crowd of 4,000 were signs of Jesus' authority over the provisions of life. And so he asked that question. Sometimes we think that we can see, but our understanding of the world around us is wrong. Baptist pastor Stephen Shane tells of a time when he went to Israel for a conference. And he had a day off while he was there, and he wanted to see some of the sights, but he was rather short on spending money. So he went down to the hotel lobby, and he thought, there are a number of tour groups that come from America, and usually they're church groups. I'll just see if one of them has an extra seat and if I can tag along on their tour bus for the day. So he, he went down to... Uh, the, the lobby and he heard that there was a large Southern Baptist group that had come into town and that was beginning their tour at that hotel. And then he overheard a blonde American woman with a Southern accent saying to their group that they were going to tour the Dead Sea and Masada that day. So he went up to her and said, hey, I'm a pastor who's ministering in Kuwait. I just happened to be here for a conference and I have a day off. Any chance I can tag along with your group? And she went and talked to the tour director and came back and said, yeah, we'd love to have you. We've got an extra seat. Come along and join us. So Stephen boarded the bus full of anticipation. The bus left Jerusalem. It was just about to get to Jericho when the blonde woman that Stephen had met said to him, I didn't know we had a church in Kuwait. And he thought, hmm, there's something ominous about the placement of this we. What does she mean? I didn't know that we had a church here in Kuwait. 
And then she added one more question, asking when he had graduated from Brigham Young University. It was at that point that he discovered, oh, I signed on to a tour bus with a bunch of Mormons. And they think I'm a pastor of a Mormon church in Kuwait. And it must have been a very interesting day for him. <laughs> he writes at the end of the story, sometimes life is like that. We go along life's road thinking we see everything perfectly only to realize later that our understanding of the world around us was actually very much wrong. Do you and I, do you and I see and hear clearly these signs about who Jesus is? Here's the third lesson. The first is that this event in Peter's life was set up by a miracle of sight. The second is that Jesus wants us to see and hear the third challenge is to be ready for your defining moment. What I have found in 35 years of ministry is that God uses all kinds of things in our lives as defining moments. They might be called pivotal decisions or wake-up calls or come-to-Jesus moments. I like this term, defining moments. Verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. We already noted that Peter's defining moment was set up by a handful of events, the promised actions of God, Hearing the, uh, healing the, the deaf man's ears and the, the blind man's eyes. This had also been set up with the second feeding miracle, the feeding of the 4,000. And now Jesus poses three questions. Back in verse 18, he asks, Do you have eyes and fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And then he asks a second, asks a second question here in verse 27. Who do people say I am? Followed by a third question, who do you say I am? If you've not answered this third question in your own life, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that today after you have a chance to process a little bit of this information and, and Peter's reaction. Each of these questions adds a greater level of clarity to the situation. At first, the disciples give him answers that the crowds are offering. So the first response is, well, some say you're John the Baptist. This was the comment that King Herod had made. Herod, who had ultimately given the order for John the Baptist's death, now hears of this ministry of Jesus as he begins teaching, and he's thinking, this guy speaks just in the same outspoken way that John the Baptist did. I thought we were rid of John, and now here's this Jesus character. Is he speaking in the same spirit, or is this John come back to life? We don't know exactly what Herod was thinking. The next answer they gave was, some say Elijah. So the last book in the Old Testament had promised that Elijah would come again uh, before they saw all the fulfillment of the times that, that God was preparing for them. And the Jewish people were aware of that, and, and they were looking forward to the return of Elijah. It's interesting that later on, Jesus will say to his disciples, if you can hear this, John the Baptist was the Elijah to come. In other words, John had spoken with the same kind of forcefulness and boldness that Elijah had. 
And then the third response that they come up with from the rest of the crowd is, some say you're one of the prophets. Now, there's a problem with each of these answers. And the answer, the problem is that each of these three categories, John the Baptist, Elijah, and one of the prophets, they were all forerunners of the Messiah. They were all people who were pointing to the ultimate coming of the Messiah, but none of them was the Messiah. This is why Jesus asked the clarifying question, who do you say I am? Folks, this is the clarifying question of the Gospels. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do, you, who do I say that Jesus is? Peter leaps into this defining moment. The other disciples don't say a word here, but Peter calls out, you are the Messiah. Matthew chapter 16 in Matthew's Gospel provides a bit fuller of an answer from Peter. He says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In this moment, Peter sees who Jesus is more clearly than ever before. In this moment, Peter, who has traveled with Jesus for nearly three years up to this point, puts the pieces of the puzzle together in his mind, and he says it with his words. Dangerous words. You are the Messiah. Okay, why were those words dangerous? Well, it says here that they were at Caesarea Philippi. That might not mean much to most people, but Caesarea Philippi was a Roman city about 25 miles north of the border of Israel. And in this particular Roman city, there had been a temple that was built to Caesar Augustus that was in gleaming white marble, and it stood at the top of a high rocky hill with a stone rock face. It was built in a city that previously had been dedicated to the Greek god Pan, and there were all kinds of carvings in that rock face wall that were there for the various gods of the Greeks who were worshipped beforehand. So here was a place where people had come before to declare who they believed the, the gods or the god of the universe was. And then this temple had been built in the honor of Caesar Augustus, and this was one of those places where people began to say, Caesar is Lord. And so as they're standing at the base of that cliff, or that rocky cliff looking up to where that temple was, Jesus asked this, this question, who do you say I am? The words that Peter said were dangerous words because if they were heard by the wrong people, they could get Jesus killed prematurely. The Pharisees were already beginning to set their plans. But it also, they were also dangerous in the eyes of the Romans in a place where Caesar was proclaimed as Lord. Peter puts all this together in his mind, and in this moment, with greater clarity than ever, than ever before, he declares who he believes Jesus is. You know what that tells us? It's okay if it takes you a while to process all of this information. That very often people don't learn about Jesus on the very first time and instantly make a proclamation, you're the Messiah. Sometimes it takes a long time for people to sift through all of that. But Jesus still asks the question. He wants us to come to the answer. And for Peter, this defining moment became the turning point of his life. Everything was different from this moment on. He declared that Jesus is the Messiah, and this was a declaration that Jesus was anointed by God for this role, for this time, for all time, and that in Peter's mind, there was nobody else to follow but Jesus. For Peter, there would be stumbles, big ones, 
but no turning back. This question leads to a defining moment in our lives too. Have you put the pieces of the spiritual puzzle about the identity of Jesus together in your mind? Do you have eyes that see and ears that hear in regard to Jesus? Or, if we were to ask in a negative way, are we blind and waiting for another sign like the Pharisees? Jesus is the one sent by God to bring meaning and purpose and eternal life into your soul. So have you made that defining declaration that Jesus is the Messiah and that you will trust him? Do you remember a few minutes ago I I said that we would have a, a moment where we would show you how to answer that question? This is that moment. You can do that right here and right now. I'm gonna ask everybody just for a moment, just close your eyes and think for a minute. And then, if you're at that decision point, just whisper these words to Jesus. Dear Jesus, I have seen enough. I believe you are the Messiah. I believe that you are the chosen one God sent for me. I believe that you came to redeem me from my sins and you came to set me free to really live. I will turn from doing things simply my own way and I will follow your way. I am placing my trust in you as my Savior and my guide for life. Right now, right here. Now, just in case there's anybody here who prayed that prayer, would you mind just raising your hand up so I can see? Show me that you've done that. There's either a renewal in your life or this is brand new for you. And it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful decision you're making. In that same spirit, if this is something new that is taking place in your life right now, this is a defining moment in your spiritual trajectory. And it's an awesome moment that you need to tell somebody about. Here's the fourth lesson that we learned from from Peter in this situation. Embrace the pathway of Jesus' mission. Notice how the tone of what Mark is writing all of a sudden changes immediately after Peter acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus immediately began to teach them that he must suffer, specifically several things, that he would suffer, be rejected, be handed over, die and rise in the third day. All of that comes in one shot. From the moment of Peter's declaration, Jesus was on the pathway to the cross. This moment was not only the defining moment of Peter's life, it was the turning point in the mission of Jesus. It was as if Jesus was invoking the words of Bill Belichick, and he's saying, we're on to Jerusalem. 
Forget about Cincinnati. We're on to Jerusalem. And he won't be swayed. He won't be deterred. There are some short stops along the way where he gives his attention to other people, but Jesus is moving to the cross. And what you'll see in the Gospel of Mark over the next nine chapters, all of a sudden the pace gets very, very fast. And everything is moving Jesus toward that end goal of his mission. Peter confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, but he had the wrong idea about the Messiah. His heart was in the right place, but his understanding would need to be refined. You ever felt like that? Your heart's in the right place toward God, but oh, there's so much more to understand. There's so much more in our lives that needs to be refined. So Jesus began to teach the disciples about what was ahead of them. Sometimes we're just like Peter. We leap with our hearts, and then we need to have our thinking adjusted along the way. I read a story this week about a Roman Catholic woman who went to buy rosary beads but she wanted rosary beads without the crucifix. And she was explaining to the person who's trying to sell them, uh, oh, it's for a friend, it's really not for me, but it's for a friend, she doesn't like the cross. She thinks the cross is just something that's really dark and, and, and negative. Do you have, a, cru- do you have a, a rosary without the crucifix? And they didn't have them. The point of the storyteller is that for us, There's no life of Jesus without the cross, really. So this becomes a second defining moment for Peter, all in this same scenario. There's no Messiah without the cross. That's what Peter wanted in this moment. He wanted Jesus to stay. He wanted the disciples to to reign in power with him. And there were a lot of misguided ideas that people had about who the Messiah would be in that time. Some were expecting a political ruler. Some were expecting an insurrectionist who would fight against the Romans. Some expected that the kingdom of peace and and all of what God is going to do in the future would come right then. And Jesus was saying, no, you don't understand. I, I have to finish this mission first. And my mission goes through the cross. Remove the cross event from the ministry of Jesus and we only have another prophet who taught many good things and even did miracles. This is why Jesus asked those defining questions. Jesus the Messiah blows away false conceptions and heads toward the cross because the cross is the power of God for destroying the power of sin and death not only in the past but in our lives today as well. We cannot just pick and choose and say we only want the Jesus who heals people but we don't want the Jesus of the cross. And this was the first lesson that Peter had to learn after his confession of faith. The Jesus who healed people did this so that we would see him as God's Messiah. And God's Messiah is the one who embraced the mission of the cross for the salvation of people like you and me. So here's the big idea for this morning. Jesus brings us to defining moments that lead us to see him as the Messiah who always embraces the mission of the cross. He wants us to see him in the context of his mission and in the context of God's overarching plan of redemption for you and me. And we fit into that when we understand the fullness of Jesus. What a great picture. Jesus brings us two defining moments. And there are several different kinds of defining moments that can happen in our lives where all of a sudden we're listening in a different way, we're seeing in a different way, and he wants us to understand the full picture of the Messiah. 
Before I pray, I'd like to uh, recognize a couple of friends. Uh, went over for coffee a couple of weeks ago with Stuart and Elaine Argus. This is their last Sunday with us. They're moving to Washington State. Will you guys stand up for just a minute? I want to thank you for being a part of North River this last several years. Thank you for being great contributors to the Norwell small group, for being part of the God's Garden team, for uh, being a part of the big event serving days that we've had. We're going to miss you. I'm going to miss you. Um, we wish you well, and I'd like to pray for you as you move across country and you begin this next phase of, of life together. Father God, thank you for this opportunity we have here to uh, serve together. I pray that you'll keep giving us clarity about who Jesus is and to act on our convictions. We also pray for Stuart and Elaine that you'll give them a safe and wonderful move, that you will open doors for them with a church fellowship where they will belong. And we ask that you will bless this next venture of life as they move closer to family, as they move away from us. Thank you for intersecting our lives for a few years. And we ask that you will bless them richly. And Lord, we ask that you will bless everybody here who is somewhere on that pathway of following Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.